0: The rat racer, you get the idea. This is a person who's like on a treadmill or going all the time like a hamster, I guess. So what do they believe?
1: So the rat racer believes that happiness comes by suffering now so that he can be happy in the future.
0: So this is a person who's climbing the ladder of success, right? And they just keep going, 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 going. So here's an actor. His name is Matthew McConaughey. And he received an Academy Award as Best Actor. He, here's what he said in his, his speech when he received this award.
1: He said, to my gyro, that's who I chase. When I was 15 years old, I had a very important person in my life come and ask me, who's your gyro? And I said, I thought about it, and it's me in 10 years. So I turned 25, 10 years later, and that same person comes to me and goes, Are you a gyro? And I said, Not even close. She said, Why? And I said, My gyro is me at 35. You see, every day and every week and every month and every year of my life, my gyro is always 10 years away. I'm never going to be my hero. I'm not going to obtain that and that's fine with me because it keeps me with somebody to keep on to keep with somebody to keep on chasing.
0: So, does that sound like a philosophy that works for you? You just keep happiness is kind of just beyond the corner, just around the next corner, around the next corner. And then you get there and then you're running again after him. He's going around the next corner and you just keep on chasing after happiness. And, and it just, I I looked this guy up online and I thought, what's he do? And this is a a picture of him after a party. Um, he says morning after the cult concert, um, something told me that perhaps he's not happy. (laughs) Uh, He's just keep on going. And then this verse came to my mind. Come unto me, all you that weary and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That is the place where we find. So he said he's okay with this chasing, chasing, chasing. But something in his what he's posting online is telling me he's not really happy. He's looking for happiness but he's not really finding it so
1: you can see the hedonist and now the rat races that we're going to be talking about are looking for happiness in the wrong places yeah right and so that's the problem right
0: let me introduce you to alistair clare his life seemed perfect
1: he experienced unprecedented success in his career
0: he was an author, a broadcaster, a singer-songwriter, and an academic.
1: He was a star student at Oxford, graduated with a conglet- congratulatory first class degree, the highest class of degree awarded at Oxford, and won the prize fellowship to All Souls College, one of the highest academic honors in the United Kingdom.
0: So Claire also wrote a novel, and a collection of poems and he recorded two albums of songs including many of his own compositions
1: he then wrote produced and directed the heart of the dragon a 12-part dvd series on china a tv series a tv series on china for the bbc
0: and the series won an emmy award but alistair clare was not there to receive the reward
1: At the age of 48, shortly after completing the series, Alistair Clare committed suicide by jumping in front of a moving train.
0: So, would knowing that he was about to win the Emmy have made any difference in his life?
1: And his ex-wife says the Emmy was a symbol of success that would have meant a great deal to him, that would have given him self-esteem.
0: But, she adds, He had so many symbols of success, much grander than the Emmy. None of them satisfied him.
1: He needed a new one each time he did something.
0: Ultimately, he never considered anything that he did to be good enough. These are the words of his ex-wife.
1: Although he was clearly a success, he was not able to see himself as successful.
0: So here's the rat racer. For the rat racer, happiness is always just around the corner. However, when they get there, the satisfaction is short-lived because they feel that they are only as good as their last performance. And so they have to keep on performing and happiness becomes an elusive, unattainable goal. They just keep going and going and going, kind of like a a rat on a on a wheel, right, or or a, a a hamster on a wheel. So you can see there are people in the Bible who are kind of driven like that, and I think Solomon fits into this category. Yet he was a builder; he was just driven, driven, driven. And then he became a hedonist, and he was he just was living for pleasure. Okay. Now it's interesting in the Bible; it warns us against deception because pleasure is a is a deception for happiness. Not that pleasure is a bad thing. God gives us ability to experience pleasure. But when pleasure becomes an end in itself and the means of getting happiness, it's very deceptive. And it leads us astray, as we've already seen. A third way that a lot of people look at that's completely a dead end is called nihilist, the nihilist or nihilism.
1: And the nihilist believes that happiness is impossible to achieve. He neither enjoys the present, nor does he have a sense of future
0: purpose. So as a person, this is a dead end. This is a dark, dark street. And and definitely Solomon got there. And if you read what Ellen White says about him, he was sitting on his throne at the end of his life, and he had experienced all of this pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. And he had experienced everything that the heart could want. And then what does he end up saying? He says... Therefore I hated life. Whoa. (laughs) That's kind of a a nihilistic statement. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what had I I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Okay? So it wasn't there. This is the person who's crying out for help and saying, It's meaningless. It's pointless. I can't get there. So here's the big question. Can you find happiness? Are we looking for it in pleasure? You're not gonna find it down that street. You're not gonna find it in constantly achieve, 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 achieve. You're not gonna find it there. And you're not gonna also find it in a nihilistic mindset, okay? So if we could put this all together, put it on a grid and on the top part you say, present detriment, present benefit. And on the the side, you would say future benefits and future detriment. What would each of these people look like and how would they fit into those categories?
1: The hedonist would be a present benefit because it's eat, drink, now. Yeah. Because tomorrow we're gonna die anyway. So let's live now. So present is benefiting, but the future is a detriment. Right.
0: Whereas the ra- rat racer, there's like, I'm going to deny myself now and I'm going to deny myself in the future. <laughs> so they're not really ever enjoying it. So there's like, sometimes, some, somewhere over there in the future, I'm going to benefit, but you never get there, right? Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of future benefit. So you say, now I'm going to just deny myself all the pleasures of life. Mm-hmm. So you're done. There's this rat racing. And then in the future, there's going to be a benefit, you just never get there, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's where the rat racer is.
1: Mm-hmm. Whereas the nihilist has got a present detriment and a future detriment because they're just never happy. They just think that happiness is unattainable, Yeah, right? There's no way you're going to attain it. And so. that's
0: major depression. And finally, happiness. Happiness is present benefit. You can in the present be happy mm-hmm. and in the future be happy. This is the person who sees life that way. Oh, there we go. So there's the grid that we gave you. I want to give you a few more quotes as we finish off this little portion, and uh, and then we're going to go on to uh, another, uh, the next part that we were going to look at. So, go ahead.
1: Um, Adventist poem says, kind, cheerful, and encouraging words will prove more effective than the most Healing medicines.
0: Wow. Wow. So this is, this is really helpful, isn't it? Kind, cheerful, and encouraging words towards others, towards yourself. Think about those words that you're saying in your own mind, okay? Like sometimes the, your own head has all those things. So kind, cheerful, and encouraging words will prove more effective than the most healing medicines. Adventist Home, page 217.
1: Here's another one. Doing a kindness produces the single most reliable increase in well-being or happiness of any exercise we have tested. So I guess this is blessing others yeah. and serving others, so right? this, yeah. And being kind. Yeah,
0: and this is Martin Seligman, who happens to be the father of positive psychology. And this is in a book called Flourish. Uh, Mark Twain, you've heard of him. He says, kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. So can your happiness change others? And you want to finish off with that thought.
1: Yeah. People who engage in meaningful conversations with friends or family report being happier than those who don't. Close interpersonal ties and strong social support are crucial for happiness. Did Jesus create us to be relational beings? Absolutely. Does he want us to have a relationship with him? Yeah. Right? So interpersonal ties and strong social support are crucial for happiness. Investigators recently showed that the capacity for loving relationships
0: was the strongest predictor for life satisfaction. The strongest predictor predictor of life satisfaction. So your capacity for loving relationships. Here's the thing, though. We we, we just read a book called Lost Connections. Mm -hmm. And in there, it talks about uh, the, the guy who's writing it is a journalist, and he was on antidepressants from when he was a teenager. And he found that that wasn't helping him. He would just get stronger and stronger doses of antidepressants. And then he started investigating it. And he's he's a major journalist in, in Britain. And he started realizing this doesn't work. So what does? And in all of his searching, he came up with a very interesting solution. Connections with people. That we have lost our connections with one another. And the more we isolate ourselves from other people, what happens to us? Our levels of happiness go down. We feel discouraged. Actually, we live shorter lives, uh, more unproductive lives. And so he said we need to connect with one another. It's a fascinating book, and you really need to read it. And so that would be very interesting in terms of what Paul says when he says, do not give up the habit of meeting together, right? Mm -hmm. And especially as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? The second coming. So as we see the second coming approaching, what does he say is going to happen? Men will be lovers of pleasure, right? Does that make you happier? No. (laughs) And also, they will hate one another and betray one another, even within the church. So there has to be a level of forgiveness that has to happen. Mm -hmm. So you need to, Ellen White says, we need to draw near to one another. And I'll show you that in a minute. I thought Martin Seligman's comment of all the things that he looked at as the one defining characteristic of extremely happy people. This came out in, in research after research. One of them was the Harvard Men's Study. And, and here's what they found.
1: They found that they are not more religious, they're not in better shape, they're not the richest, not better looking. They don't have more good events in their lives. They don't have fewer bad events in their lives.
0: So what would it be? (laughs) You think, oh, if I could eliminate all the bad things, I'd be happier. If I could have more happy things, I'd be happier. If I could go to church more and pray, I'd be happier. It's like, no, there's one ingredient that makes everyone happier. Here's what it is, and that is they're extremely social, okay? They value people. They have lasting, deeply rewarding marriages. And they have a rich repertoire of friends. How do you do that? What does the Bible say? In order to have friends, you must make yourself friendly, right? You must make yourself friendly. So to reach out to other people. Isn't that exactly what Ellen White was saying when she said in Desire of Ages that Jesus was possessed of one purpose? He lived to do what? To bless others, mm-hmm. and when you live for others, it's just contagious.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Not question. To be like melody, <laughs> you know,
1: there's a point in your life where maybe you feel that you're friendly or you feel that you are making an effort. Yes. So, so it sure. Come as sure. As yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what do you do in the situation where you are alone, not by
0: your choice? Not by choice. Yeah. yeah good question. That's affecting your happy It clearly is affecting your happiness. Yes. Well, I guess I would go to the usual advice column. You know, the Dear Abby and the Ann Landers. What do they always say? If you are feeling down and you're looking, you know, look for someone who needs you, right? I guess like the, you know, the smiling face with all their unhappy faces around them they can't possibly be happy if, you, if, everyone, if anyone else is not happy, right? So if my friends are, if there's someone who's not happy, there's always someone who needs you. There's always someone who's worse off than yourself. And to look for that, there are plenty, right? Jesus says you're always going to have the poor among you. And to look for that. This is, here's, here's what really struck me. Um, I don't know if you heard of this, this um, pastor. His name is Francis Chan. And he used to have a mega church. And he decided that here's what he did. He decided to himself that he was there's millions of dollars going into this mega church, and they were basically just meeting there to have worship, to get together, right? And it was it turned into here's what what experience, what he had as an experience. Lots of people were coming into the church and being saved. But this one guy was a a gang leader, and he worked with his gang leader. And the gang leader came into the church, and he was on fire. He baptized him. It was a wonderful thing. And then, all of a sudden, after a year or so, the gang leader psh, disappeared.
1: gone, yeah, is not coming to church anymore. doesn't see him in the congregation anymore,
0: right? So-, so he goes looking for him. Goes out in the streets, tries to find this guy, finds him, and says to him, Hey, man, what's going on? He's, you're, I haven't seen you at church anymore. He says, here's, here's the thing. When I came to church, I thought it was like the gang, but better. Because when I joined a gang as a kid, I did it because it was family, right? But when I came to church, you guys just meet for like an hour or so, and then it's over. It's not family. And he said it made him sick. It's like, is this what it is? And so he's like, I'm not doing this anymore. So he stopped as a pastor doing that, and he started ministering to people on the streets of San Francisco. It's a huge ministry. And what are they doing? They're taking families, strong families who are Christians, and they're they're saying, look for people who need you and grow those people and put everything you can into those people. These people are, are forming communities and small groups of communities and people who who had never been Christian before and had no connection before. Some of these people are even opening up restaurants just to get people and to, to give them food and to help them and, and you know, it's it's an amazing thing.
1: So I was really serving and they were seeing Jesus' love shining through these people, right?
0: I'm going to give you a challenge tomorrow that's going to help you with that question, but I, I'm just going to fast forward it right here. And that is this, that ask God, and I'm sure you've done it already, but ask God to bring people into your lives that you can minister to. This is the best way to, make, to, to bring happiness that we know of. That, that connecting with other people by connecting with them in a a meaningful way. So I see an opportunity and I say, the first question I usually ask is, do I have the resources, do I have the time, do I have the energy, do I have the money to do this? I now stop that. I say, forget about that question. If I see a need, meet it now right? And so I see someone in need right now, right? I don't wait. I just go right there, right there. Unless, of course, someone else is waiting for me right there, right? But I try I try right away to connect with that person. So my wife and I do some crazy things, but that's, that's one of the things. So happiness is contagious. Having a happy friend or a family member who lives within a mile of you appears to increase the probability up to 15% in one study, that you will be happy too. So happiness is contagious, and that's from happiness and how happiness affects your health. So here's the questions that we threw at you. True or false, happiness is good for you? True. True. Mm -hmm. Many people do not know how to find happiness.
1: True, because they're finding it in the wrong places, right? Like the rat racer and the um, hedonist and the nihilist. It's not where we're going to find Jesus. We're going to find, we'll experience joy in jesus right if we have jesus like the uh, joy is yeah. think of it of the j for jesus and the o for zero and the y for you right when there's nothing between you and jesus you'll
0: have joy, joy. right and mm-hmm. that nice ah there you yes. go so they in their minds they have been pr- that's right. So you've been yeah, primed and programmed true. to say happiness is Coca-Cola, happiness is McDonald's, happiness is Netflix, right? Well, you, you, you drink Coca-Cola and eat McDonald's and you watch Netflix and how do you feel the next day? Refreshed and happy, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, you ask someone, how many Netflix... Uh, I watched three movies last night. What were they? Uh, I can't remember. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you can find happiness. Can you find happiness? yes okay and I want you to use these exercises see the thing is we give you something practical and sometimes we just like ah let's put it on the back shelf practice it practice it Mm -hmm. when you practice it it works if you work it okay Mm -hmm. all the things that we've been giving you okay
1: and then number four your happiness can change others
0: can change others
1: true or false true True. True. Mm -hmm. okay so
0: the very last thing we want to share with you before we go into the next little portion here is this statement. Look how powerful this statement is.
1: In our separation from one another, we are separated from Christ. We want to praise together. Oh, how many times when I have seemed to be in the presence of God and holy angels, I have heard the angel voice say. Press together, press together, press together, press together. In unity there is strength. I repeat the message to you. Be determined that you will press together. Seek God with all the heart and you will find him. And the love of Christ that passeth understanding will come into your hearts and and lives.
0: So there's the quote. It was from second selected messages. And um, while I'm putting up the next one, I want to share something with you um, just briefly. And this is the question that, uh, that I want to ask you. If it was four in the morning and you had a crisis, how many people could you call? How many people do you know that you could call? You know, you don't have to, you don't have to say it out loud. But how many people, number of people, could you call and you know that they would be there for you? Now, the average in times past (laughs) was five. When you ask people in North America today that question, zero most people would say zero how many in you in this room could say about five any that's good that's very very good four in the morning more than five anyone okay yeah so think about that would you be one of those people that someone else could call yeah that's wonderful if people know that about you that's a wonderful thing when i was studying uh at university I remember I ran out of, yeah, I ran, I, I, I ran out of detergent, and I thought to myself, who could I ask? Because, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. Like, I got I to gotta go wash my clothes. It's a Sunday. Who am I going to ask in the dorm for? And I thought, no, not that kid. Like, he's going to laugh at me. Or not that guy. Nah, he's rich. You know, he's not going to help me. And I went all the way down the hall, right? Because I was like, you know, it's a status thing, whatever. They're going to think wor- highly, less of me, whatever. And I knew there was this guy at the end of the hall. And he used to be like a drug dealer. And But he, he found Jesus. This guy was alive for Jesus. I knew that that guy, if I went into his room, he would give me soap powder right away. And so I went over there and I said, you know, I'm out of detergent. Yeah. Come on in, right? He's like, Jesus loves you, brother. Come on in here and get some soap out. Here it is. And he's giving me this and he's preaching to me the whole time. But he's always like that. He's always like that. And that's just like, what does that do for me? It's like, yeah, I got a friend here, right? That's it, right? You just, just share that with others. And, um, you know, that's that's what I'm encouraging you to do. So we're going to go into a story here. So Sean wakes up in the morning. He's a Harvard professor. True story, by the way. And he, he, has, he has this desire. He's been, he has a desire to steal, steal a police car. <laughs> Almost stole a police car. He had no desire to do that before. Now, why did he do that? Because he was up for five hours until four in the morning playing a game called Grand Theft Auto. So, he recalls that for five straight hours, he had been accustomed to this pattern of behavior, this sequence that he had followed. Find a car, steal it, and then engage in a high-speed chase. And if you're successful in getting away, then you get rewarded with fake money, okay? So, this this has been his pattern of thinking the night before. And he's like, of course, I see a cop car.
1: So, it was your average stupid video game, but that morning, after he had been up, after playing the game for five hours, right, it affected his behavior in the real world, right? So, he walked out onto Massachusetts Avenue, scanned the street for a car to steal, and he's. Brain, and to his brain's momentary, de- momentary delight, he saw the best car to steal, a cop car, mm. right? Because when you steal a police car in this game, you get more money, <laughs> right? So you're rewarded with more money. So he's going and he sees this police car and it was just parked there. It was not even five feet from him and so the rational part of his brain had no time to stop him from committing the crime so he's walking towards this car and he's not going to steal it right
0: so it was a massachusetts state police car <laughs> the fact that there was a police officer sitting in the seat no problem because in the game he's dealt with this before he just opens the door and ejects him right out of the seat and Just as he was reaching to grab the door handle, he saw his reflection in the window. And when he did, it jolted him into reality and he realized, this isn't a game. This is real. Mm -hmm. And he almost opened the door and reached in and pulled the police officer out. And his heart was thumping. And He's like, how? did I do this? <laughs> How could I even think that I was going to get away with this? I mean, what would I tell the judge? I'm standing in front of the judge. It's not my fault. I was stuck in the game. You know, I wasn't really doing this, right? He had absolutely no desire to really, in the real world, steal, steal a police car. But in the game, yes, he had a desire to steal a police car. So that morning, his behavior in the real world was affected by where his mind was in the game. Does that make sense?
1: But Sean also realized that he discovered that this kind of behavior is not entirely uncommon. Okay? Uh In the recent case of the two teens, K. McLeod, who was 19, and Brian Shmalsky, who was 18, Mm -hmm. from Port Alberni, BC, they were accused in the murders of three people, Mm -hmm. right? And the RCMP said it would be difficult to determine the motive behind these suspects, because they couldn't be interviewed,
0: right? Because they found their bodies dead, right? Just recently, they had committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one of the a retired RCM police officer said, wait, there, are, there is some evidence that speaks to motive. He says, at least one of the individuals seemed to be highly influenced by violent video games. And then he said, all that speaks to motive. It goes to motive. Uh, he says, that all goes to motive. Investigators deemed them to be accused when details surfaced about their use of video games. I thought that was interesting. This is from an article that was written uh, in, uh, online. I was reading this. It said, one account showed that Schmigalski uh, was a frequent player of a shooting game called Russia Battle rounds. So what was happening there? These guys, the police are saying that they can't interview these guys anymore and find out why they did it because they're dead. But what they left behind, the evidence that they keep on pointing to is video game, video game, video game. So that's telling me something. If police know that that is a motive, then shouldn't there be kind of like A warning on video games? (laughs) Or maybe the rest of us should be warned against people who are playing video games, (laughs) because they might kill us, right? Like this is this isn't this isn't a game. This is very serious.
1: So yes, the principle behind what was happening in the case of Sean Aker almost stealing that police car and these two teenagers, right? Who were accused of committing three murders by beholding We Become? Change.
0: Change. Or to put it another way, yes, Margaret. Yeah. It is. So, Margaret, just for the purpose of the recording, um, you were saying to us that that um, children are ingrained with this message, and they're told this by their parents, and so they hear it over and over again. You're, you're, you know, you can't achieve anything. And if let me just put it to you this way: if you fail, does that make you a failure? No failing doesn't mean failing means that's something you did yeah but failure is a label right it's an identity and when you when you label someone that way you say you're a liar right no you may did you tell a lie? yes does that make you a liar no you did that can you be forgiven of that yeah so not to label yourself or label another person or give them that kind of an identity but you're right we do get ingrained that way as a child, and we get that into our minds. So we're going to talk about our story as we go along. But one of the things that I just want to tell you, kind of just to let you know a little bit about myself, I, I wasn't raised as a seven-day Adventist. Um, I, I wasn't raised going to church school or anything like that. I actually was raised in an orphanage, okay? And and my father was an alcoholic, okay? So there's there's a a lot of things where you, if you looked at my life, you would say, it probably, you shouldn't be the kind of person you are, right? Like, you know, I, I work a, a lot with, with teens and with, you know, other, other uh, people, and, and I, I am a happy person. I enjoy life, and I encourage that, and I, and I try to exude that. Now, what, what, what changed? If I can put it to you this way, really simply, Jesus says you need to be born again, okay? So that means that my Heavenly Father, what people say to us matters a great deal. You know, if if I say to my wife, I love you, that matters to her. Those words really matter, right? When you say that to some other human being, it matters to them. And I wasn't told that when I was a little kid. I wasn't told I love you. So for me to say that to my children was so hard. You know, the first, as soon as my, my daughter was born, it was like a miracle and I was looking at her and I was saying, I can't say that, right? <laughs> it was so hard it would get stuck in my throat. So I actually went into the room by myself, closed the door, and I knew that if I didn't say it now when she didn't understand what I was saying, I wouldn't be able to say it later because it would be like, she's gonna look at me and say, Daddy, why are you saying that, right? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to say it when she just was still just a newborn. So I would, I was literally in there over and over again saying, you know, I'm holding her and I'm saying, ah, ah, and I tried to say, I love you, right? And eventually it came out and I, I've got tears coming down my face and I'm like, I love you. And now every time I see my daughters, I say it, no problem. You know, it gives me joy is to hear them say, oh, I love you too, right? So that is so crucial that you tell your children that, but that you now deprogram yourself. (laughs) So if I say, this is the day the Lord has made, let us, saying, Lord, change me. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Change me, Lord, right? This is a prayer. This is divine. This is a miracle for us to change the programming in our minds from this state of, this is who I am, to, right? So, but
1: we can't do it alone. No. It's like you were definitely. saying, you were born again, right? Yes. And so we need divine intervention.
0: And I needed the church. The yeah. church became my family, mm-hmm. you know? And I connected with church people who, who really loved me. And I could see that, right? And, and so, you know, mm-hmm. that's, what, that's what we're all about. So we came into this principle that says, by beholding, we become changed. Or another way of putting it is, we adapt to the subjects that we consider. Right Or we change our behavior according to that?
1: So, um, here's a Bible verse that this truth is based on. It's found in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. By looking at Jesus... We become like Jesus. And by looking at something else, we become like that something else, right? Or even, like Margette said, hearing something else. Or, or, uh, you know, they say monkey see, monkey do, doing something, you know. That's not, you know, you become like that, right? Mm -hmm. So, in 2002, a 23 year old gamer was jailed for refusing to turn off his cell phone in a flight from Egypt to England, right? The crew repeatedly asked him to switch off his phone, but he refused. And the reason was that he was playing Tetris, a video game called Tetris. Have you heard about this game? How many
0: of you have played Tetris before? Okay, it's it's a deceptively simple game, okay? These four shapes come down. From the top of the screen and then as they go you rotate them or you can move them around from side to side and then you drop them down and as they drop they're supposed to make a single horizontal line and when they do they disappear right and the whole point of the game is to get as many single horizontal lines across the bottom of the screen sounds kind of boring but it's deceptively addicting, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. When you play it, you just wanna play and play and play. And yeah. so they've, they've asked students, for example, um, they paid students to play the game for up to three days, nonstop. And what happens to their minds when they do that?
1: They found that people who played Tetris for a prolonged amount of time could find themselves thinking about ways different shapes in the real world could fit together, right? Like boxes on a supermarket shelf, like how those going to fit together, right? Or the buildings on a street, you know, how the buildings on a street going to fit together? And some of them would hallucinate pieces being generated and falling into place on an invisible layout, right? So they would just see these pieces coming down. So, so the Tetris effect is a form of habit then, right? It becomes a habit, right? So...
0: And it, it, it would get into people's minds so much and it was any kind of a habit where you're, you're looking at things and, and here's how they define the Tetris effect. The Tetris effect occurs when when people devote so much time and attention to an activity. It doesn't have to be Tetris. But because Tetris playing produced this kind of thing, they called it the Tetris Effect, but any activity that it begins to be a pattern, and it patterned their thoughts, their mental images, and even their dreams, and even their their sensations. So for example, they even called it a Tetris Effect if someone was a rock climber, and then they went to sleep at night, and they could feel the texture of the rocks on their hands, you know? Or you go for a whole day skiing, and then you feel like you're skiing even in your sleep, or else you're on a boat all day, and then you feel like, oh, I'm on the water, or, or you have a rough day at work and the whole day, you're like the whole dreaming session in your mind, you're just going through problems. you It's like you're at work all night, right? And so that becomes known as the Tetris effect. So it's a repeated pattern of thinking and behavior that, that starts to invade the real world.
1: Yeah, and so also playing hour of, after hour of Tetris usually changes the wiring of the brain And consistent playing was creating new neural pathways, new connections that warped the way they viewed real life situations,
0: right? So they started to coin a term called the positive and negative Tetris effect. The the negative Tetris effect um, would affect people, for example, say an auditor. Um, What is an auditor trained to do and paid to do? To look for mistakes. And so because they're looking for mistakes in their work all day long they come home and they start looking for mistakes they look for mistakes in the way their children are are dressed or they're speaking or they're looking and then uh, so much so that this one auditor he came to work and he was feeling kind of discouraged and depressed and someone asked him what happened he says well he says no nothing my wife left me well what happened well You know, I thought it was, you know, a good thing. So I sat down at my desk. I couldn't get it out of my mind. You know, she had been doing a whole lot of... She'd been making a lot of mistakes for the last six weeks. So I got out an Excel spreadsheet, and I put a list of all her mistakes that she had made for the last six Six weeks. weeks. And I gave it to her. Bad mistake. (laughs) So it became his ex-wife,
1: right? She became his ex-wife. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes... um. Others would comment, you know, not just on their wives, but their children, like Mike was saying, and they would just focus on the Cs on the report and not look at the A's, Mm -hmm. right? And just focus on their kids' weaknesses and just hammer on that weakness all the time and just look for the Cs or the Fs and not even see their strengths in the A's Uh or the higher grades, right? So, like, also, it's just there would could be it could be a sunny day and there could be two men standing outside and one would say i enjoy the sunshine and the other one would complain and say i wish it wasn't so hot outside uh-huh. right and so the fact is that both are true right it is sunny and it is hot right but by falling into the habits of complaining the second person was uh-huh. making himself blind to opportunities possibilities and chances for growth because negative thinking narrows our focus, Uh right? And it takes away our creativity, it raises our stress levels and lowers our motivation and our ability to accomplish goals.
0: So you, you get different kinds of professions, lawyers, for example, they're always, they're trained to look for flaws in people's arguments, right? And the problem is they come home and then they start interrogating their children or their wife or, you know, or even people at work It's like, whoa, why are you interrogating me? The problem is that this becomes very critical to their health. Um, lawyers on average are 3.6 times, that's 360%, more likely to suffer uh, from major depressive disorders than the rest of the employed population. So scanning our environment for negatives is hazardous not only to our health, but to the health of our relationships. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah.
1: So this is all co- what we were discussing now is the the negative Tetris effect. Yes. Right? Okay, so in terms of how our thoughts affect our spiritual lives, he has a very important thought. And this is what Mike and I have been discussing with you. Um, and our kind of motto. Yes. Right. For this um, for this seminar that we're doing. The only security for any soul is right thinking. Mm-hmm. As a man thinketh in his heart, so
0: is he. he. Okay, you want to say that with us? The Say it with us. The only security for any soul is right thinking. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Okay, so this is from a book called um, The Story of Redemption. And this is what Ellen Wright writes. She says on page 13, Lucifer in heaven, before his rebellion, was a high and exalted angel. Next, in honor to God's dear son, his countenance, like those of the other angels, was mild and expressive of happiness. His forehead was high and broad, showing a powerful intellect. His form was perfect, his bearing noble and majestic. A special light beamed in his countenance and shone around him, brighter and more beautiful than around the other angels. Yet Christ, his dear son, had the preeminence over all the angelic host. He was one with the Father before the angels were created. Lucifer was envious of Christ and gradually assumed command which or gradually yeah, assumed command, which devolved on Christ alone. So he wanted to be higher than Christ. So Lucifer was envious and jealous of Jesus Christ. She goes on to say on page 14. Yet when all the angels bowed to Jesus to acknowledge his supremacy and high authority and rightful rule, he bowed with them. But his heart was filled with envy and hatred. Mm -hmm. Do you see where it starts? If God could go around and just remove every trace of sin in the world, where would he have to remove it from? The heart. How does he do that? Not by burning fire, right? He's only going to do that by his love. That's the only way that he does it, right? And and so he, he's showing his love. He pleads with him. After much pleading with Lucifer, over and over pleading with him and showing him his love, Lucifer, it says in, in a Great Controversy, was convinced that he was wrong, was convinced. Mm-hmm. But his pride would not let him back down. And so there became, what it says, a war in heaven. The word in, in, uh, in the book of Revelation is polemos, which in English means a war of words. Okay? So there was a war of words. And the sacred corridors of heaven were now filled with these this war of words. Now, You know what it's like. I mean, if you ever hear someone shouting and there's a war of words in the house, you're just like, ah, this is so upsetting. Mm -hmm. And eventually, Satan was cast out of heaven. And this is when happiness was gone Mm -hmm. from the universe. Mm -hmm. So here's a quote.
1: So the story of redemption puts it this way. Satan stood in amazement At his new condition, his happiness was gone. He looked upon the angels who with him were once so happy. Before their fall, not a shade of discontent had marred their perfect bliss. Now all seemed change. After his fall, happiness was gone. But before their fall, there was not a shade of discontent. So everything changed.
0: So we want you to do something with us, close your eyes for a minute. Okay. We want you to imagine something, so close your eyes and imagine.
1: Imagine that there is not one shade of discontent, not one shade of happiness, of unhappiness. No one is unhappy anywhere in the world, anywhere in the entire universe. And not just that, there never has ever before been one single creature that has ever felt pain, suffering, or unhappiness. What does that look like? What does it feel like? Is this picture attractive to you? Or is it completely unrealistic? In this world you long for, is this the kind of world that you long for, or do you doubt it could ever exist? For me, this is a world that I long for.
0: You see, this is the way it once was. At one stage in the history of the universe, no one had ever been unhappy, no one had even experienced a shade of unhappiness. However, when Lucifer changed the way that he saw God, everything changed. When Lucifer became envious and jealous of Jesus, everything changed. So open your eyes. How would it be? Wouldn't it be beautiful? Hard to imagine. It is hard to imagine, but if you put yourself in that place and say, what was it like before? Because it's going to be like that again, right? But Ellen White says that after this is all over, we will be closer to Jesus than if we had never sinned. That is Mm -hmm. (laughs) mind-boggling. We'll be even closer to him than if we had never sinned. So,
1: look at this next um, thing, this next, I don't know what you would call it, right? Statement, yes. This next statement, yeah. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change,
0: right? Yeah. And all seemed changed, it said, after Lucifer changed the way he saw Jesus. When he changed the way he see, saw Jesus, he changed. Everything changed. So we want to show you a picture. What do you see here? A young lady or an old lady? You see a young lady? Do some of you see an old lady?
1: Some of you might see both. I see a young lady and an old lady.
0: So if I were to zoom in closer and turn it into a drawing, can you see that this is the chin of the young lady and this is her eyelash and this is her nose. You see that?
1: So it's a side view, right?
0: But if I kind of blur it a bit, you could say that's the young lady, but if you see this as the eye, and you see this choker as her mouth, then you see this big nose, and boy, she's an old lady. Can you see that? Yeah. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Okay. What do you see here?
1: Do you see zebras, or a lion, or both? Ooh. Both. Okay.
0: Do you see coffee beans? Yes. Do you also see a face? Or
1: a head.
0: A head. <laughs> <laughs> he's right there. Yeah, he's right there. Yeah, oh. wow. yeah that's kind of deceptive there. Mm-hmm. What do you see here? A face, or a pile of stones, or both? Both. Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: And what do you see over here? Ships or a bridge or both? Mm
0: -hmm. Isn't that cool? Okay. So, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. This is the way Milton put it in a book called Paradise Lost. The mind is its own place. Now, you have to think deeply about this. And in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Uh, isn't that what Lucifer did?
1: Yeah, he, he made a hollow heaven. Yeah,
0: right. in his mind. You see that? Mm-hmm. Now, Paradise Lost, if you read the book Great Controversy, um, and you read Paradise Lost, which I had to do for university, this is a very long <laughs> book. It's a poem. And you can see a lot of parallels there. And, uh, you know, I, I've actually spoken to some some people who have, have said, uh, university professors say that a lot of Ellen White's, she, she read, of course, Paradise Lost. It's very inspirational. By the way, he wrote it when he was blind. The whole of Paradise Lost, he was blind. Oh, he didn't write it himself in his hand, but he dictated it to his daughters who wrote it out. Isn't that incredible? So look at this. This is help in daily living, which is the last section of ministry of healing. Page 35, it says, the very act of looking for evil in others develops evil in those who look. Mm -hmm. By dwelling upon the faults of others, we are changed into the same image. Do you see what's happening here? So you have Lucifer, who's a beautiful angel, the highest of the angels, and he looks up at God and he says, you are evil. Did that make God evil? Did it make God evil? No. Mm -hmm. It made him into a devil. This beautiful angel became Satan. Okay? Why? Because when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change because you change. (laughs) When you look for evil in others, it doesn't develop evil in them. It develops evil in you. Right? So
1: your view of things changes you. That's right. Yeah.
0: That's right. And that changes everything. And not only did he change himself, but he changed the view of other angels. So we, a, a third of the angels mm-hmm. fell. It says in great controversy that at the beginning it was a half, and then you know after the war of words, the others, and there was only a third of the angels. But you got billions of angels. So he was very persuasive. Remember we said earlier that your happiness can influence others, but also your unhappiness can influence them. Mm-hmm. And the way in which you're sharing those, those thoughts is going to influence others. Mm-hmm. So, Let's
1: wh- look at the rest of the quote.
0: Though. So, more. Let's look at that quote again. It says, The very act of looking for evil in other, others mm-hmm. develops evil in those who look by dwelling upon the faults of others. We are changed into the same image, but the rest of the quote goes on to say, "But by beholding
1: Jesus, talking of His love and perfection of character, we become changed into His image."
0: Right? So, how do we return to Im- to happiness according to Jesus, or according to those words, by beholding Jesus? Jesus right. Mm-hmm by looking in his direction, can you see that Jesus was happy, right? Can you, if you look back and you say, Methuselah lived for six, what, 969 years? He must have been a happy man because he was healthy and he lived for a long time, right? Noah must have been a happy man. Enoch must have been a happy man. He never died, right? Can you imagine? He's in heaven. I mean, he's, he's, he never, ever died. He just, he was so close to Jesus his whole life, Can you imagine, as a young man, he's walking with Jesus, he's talking with Jesus, he's just having fun with Jesus, and eventually Jesus says, hey, why don't you come to my house, right? You're so, you know, Mm -hmm. this happier even over there. So, does Jesus want us to be happy? Yes. So, he said, these things have I spoken unto you that, what? My joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full.'" So, like I said before, this is the guidebook, my words. I'm speaking these words to you. Mm -hmm. Take them personally, because I want you to be filled with joy. So this book is the the guidebook for happiness, Mm -hmm. the manual for happiness. This is what it is. And God wants our happiness. Here it says, the the Lord would have all of his children, all of his sons and daughters happy. Mm -hmm. This is Steps to Christ, page 124.
1: And look at this quote about the condition of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Very happy with a holy pear in Eden.
0: Very happy.
1: Very happy.
0: So the Garden of Eden, beautiful. That was a happy place. So what have we established? We have established two truths here. Number one, unhappiness comes from evil thinking not right thinking, but evil thinking. So when I think of evil of others, it develops evil within me. And also Jesus is the source of happiness. Never lose that. Focus on him. How are we doing? We have to finish. We do. It's time. I want to just finish with this one last quote. Can I share this with you? Okay. Um, Renee's going to read it for you. Go ahead.
1: This is, this is just like mind-blowing. For thousands of years, Satan has been experimenting upon the properties of the human mind. Experimenting, right? That's a strong word, right? And he has learned to know it well. By his subtle workings in these last days, he is linking the human mind with his own imbuing it with his thoughts and he is doing this work in so deceptive a manner that those who accept his guidance know not that they are being led by him and his will. The great deceiver hopes so to confuse the minds of men and women that none but his voice will be heard. Right. Okay. That is scary.
0: That is scary. So right. what you're spending your time looking at, what you're thinking about, that is getting... So what do you think Satan's thoughts are? Are they are they beautiful, bright, and sunny? Or are they dark and gloomy? They're evil. Evil, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, are they thinking, hey, I'm more concerned about others than myself? Or is it all egotistical? Yeah? And it's dark? So... I want to finish you with this word from the Bible. Don't trust me. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a preacher. I always say this is the last. This is the last one. Okay. <laughs> the mission statement of Satan and of Jesus is found in John ten ten. It says the thief comes only to what? Steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Okay, John ten ten. This media was brought to you by Audioverse